In this episode, Ben Tronelic, CFO at Symphony.com, shares how his passion for tech, finance and trading has driven his career so far. He explains why his desire to automate away manual work started from day one. And he emphasizes the importance of speed and independence in any high-performing finance team. Hi, I'm Ross, and this is the CFO Playbook, where each week you'll get insights from world-class financial leaders to help you grow your company, yourself, and face the challenges required of today's CFO. Before we jump into the interview, we want to invite you, our listeners, to head to our show notes to find a link to our listener survey. We want to learn about how to make the CFO playbook even better. As a thank you, you'll have the opportunity to win your choice of an iPad or a Samsung Galaxy Tab S7. We would love your feedback. Ben, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I'm really uh, excited to uh, have this conversation. So Ben, obviously you're in your position now as CFO at symphony.com, but you've actually had uh, an incredibly lengthy career that, that's delved into advisory, investment banking, and, and, and various other places. Can you explain a little bit and talk a little bit more about uh, your journey up until being CFO at Symphony? Absolutely. I think if, for me, the... Uh, the CFO role was always a aspiration that I personally had. And I was fortunate early high school, college to have a lot of exposure Went through my dad, through the other people in the business world that gave me an opportunity to understand the impact that a CFO and finance leaders can have on an organization. And I had an opportunity to work New York Stock Exchange, a few other financial services, capital markets, organizations. And in all those places, I made an effort to get to know the individuals who were you know, overall running the financials and the financial strategy. At the same time, it really was appreciative of the rate of change that technology was bringing both to capital markets and to the finance profession. You know, and it was clear to me in college and immediately after college that technology was going to enable the CFO and the finance function to have an impact at organizations that previously you were not able to do because the volume of work was so manual. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was the exciting part. Yeah, I, I wasn't overly interested in spending you know, years and years behind you know, Excels and data and moving things around, but really you know, how are you able to take operational processes, business strategies, and turn those into financial outcomes for a company for investors and for all the stakeholders that are part of the organization. And I really you know, thought a lot about the attributes and the skill set needed to get into a CFO role and be an effective CFO. And we'll uh, sure we'll have a chance to talk about you know, the things that happened and mistakes. And like anything, there's uh, nothing's linear, right? You're up and down and you have successes and you also make uh, lots of mistakes that you, that you learn from. As I really approached my career, I was at Lehigh and an accounting undergraduate which I say to anyone, you know, an accounting degree really does prepare you very well for you know, the CFO track. And if you're a CFO, you're not necessarily an accountant, but you need to understand the uh, balance sheet, income statement, cash flows, and the language of business is driven by accounting. And ultimately, your ability to articulate numbers and align numbers to a strategy 
and business back to measured results has to be on the based on the foundation of your understanding accounting. And I think there are plenty of times where you see people in you know, potentially CFO roles that don't have that strong of an accounting grasp, and they can struggle to understand all the elements that happen in that side of the space. Uh, so you started at Pricewaterhouse in New York, worked primarily in the uh, broker-dealer de- audit and consulting group, mm-hmm. and had uh, a lot of exposure to you know, some early on to some you know, really interesting organizations, JP Morgan, Nomura, the inner dealers with the Euro brokers, technology-based broker-dealer firms that, for me, gave me in a very short amount of time, three or four years, an opportunity to see global trading organizations, specific broker-dealer, technology-enabled organizations, companies that were based outside of the U.S., but operating in the U.S., and organizations that were trying to figure out you know, how do we take technology and drive a different outcome with our business model. And that was in the kind of late 90s, early 2000s. And the pace of change in the broker-dealer trading world you know, had really started to accelerate. Uh, things like you know, decimalization were coming in. Electronic trading was increasing volumes, traded on the stock at NYC and NASDAQ. And all the broker-dealers were trying to figure out you know, how do we adapt to this new world where technology applications are going to be paramount to our success and drive our success less so reliant on some of the previous attributes that people needed uh, to be successful in the the broker-dealer space. But for me, that Pricewaterhouse time really gave me a a very quick inside look at at the capital market space. And you had an opportunity to meet a lot of, uh, and work closely with a lot of controllers and CFOs of my clients Mm -hmm. who uh, were fantastic teachers and, and mentors during that phase. What's fascinating actually about the way you describe your motivation is that it sounds so thought through and purposeful. We've obviously had a, a huge mix of people and how they've arrived at CFO and, and met with the motivation for it. One of our most recent guests actually described himself proudly as the accidental CFO because for him, it was like never the plan and, it, and he ended up there via being a founder and an entrepreneur. So what's really interesting is that you have been very purposeful about it and you identified a few trends. One is that the impact of CFO was huge, but then the really interesting one is that if technology hadn't uh, been automating different aspects of finance for decades, it might not even have been desirable for you. Uh, and you you recognize that very early on. So it's, it's fascinating to hear that. I was just always you know, someone that was really interested in technology. Uh-huh. And you know, as grade school, I had my uh, PS2 and 10 megabyte hard drive. My dad bought me a 30 meg hard drive for Christmas uh, one year. And I was like the most excited kid in the world. I was like, look, I got three times the space. Uh, And for me, it was just, it was always just technology was a fascinating element. And it was technology, finance, capital markets. Those are the three threads that just always piqued my interest. And I had curiosity towards, and I realized the benefit of working in New York, you know, at a global firm like Pricewaterhouse was I was able to find a path where, Technology, capital markets, and finance could all converge in a way that you know, allowed me to have some really interesting experiences with clients and with businesses, uh-huh. and you know, do it in a thoughtful approach. So then, does, does that passion for technology that started for you very, very young, has, does that continue to this day, even in the way you approach things within Symphony? Oh, definitely, definitely, yeah, absolutely. We're a technology company at our core. We provide collaboration workflow software to the investment banking world, global capital markets, commercial banks. And everything we do is around driving efficiency in trading and trading-related workflows mm-hmm. to capital markets participants. And we just use technology for that. It's applications, it's software, it's connectivity, you know, it's it's virtual communications, all in a way to you know, reduce the inefficiency that 
non-technological solutions introduced into capital markets and trading. And on that point, on the the use of technology, we've had uh, some recent guests on as well talking about the fact that their belief, and one of them set up a company called Mosaic on that basis, that finance was becoming increasingly technical because of that proliferation of data and the need to even make sense of that data from a database perspective before you can do any analysis. Is that a thesis that you would agree with? Definitely. There there are probably times people on my uh, teams I've led probably driven a little bit crazy because I'm someone who you know, I like to go into the systems. I can run my own reports. I can do my own analysis. Yeah, I'll never just kind of sit back and wait for things to come. And how we build, I've always built our financial systems is any user needs to be able to go into a system and you know, look at their data, run a report, do the analysis, you know, understand the numbers and you're know, giving individuals across an organization or an enterprise access, direct access to that level of technology and information, financial information just helps a CFO drive financial strategy mm-hmm. because you're not trying to spoon feed people. Here's this information or here's a schedule that you can't really make sense of. It's you can go into Domo or NetSuite or Workday or what, you know, whatever your technology application that you have you know, as a leader, as a head of sales, as a head of product, as a CIO, even as our CEO. Mm-hmm. And understand the financials that are supporting you know everything we're doing in the business. And so for me, without that level of technology access and development and financial technology applications, it would be very difficult and to provide that information to you know, a wide group of people. And at the same time, you, know, you as a CFO would spend all your time just talking about numbers as opposed to creating the environment that you can distribute that information you know, out to all the interested parties. And nothing makes, I love the phone calls when our chief revenue officer will call and say, hey, I was looking at uh, Domo, which is we use for our uh, business analytics, or I was looking at Adaptive, which we use for FP&A, and I saw this. Can we talk about this trend? I'm like, yeah, that's perfect. Because that's not even me going out to a person saying, hey, go look at this. Someone has the tools, has the access, has the knowledge. Then it enables that conversation. For us to have a conversation about what's happening in the business supported by numbers, as opposed to just looking at a bunch of numbers, trying to figure out what's going on in the business. Obviously, at the heart of your company is the idea of like being able to engage with people in fluid, yeah. dynamic conversation and communication. The The old model is some central team who's very smart and very technical produces materials right. with insights. Somebody looks at it and says, well, that doesn't answer the question I've got in my mind, of course, because they didn't right. know that. But yeah. the, the creation of these self-serve tools creates a far more dynamic, explorative type of collaboration within the company. Without a doubt. It brings down information barriers. It takes out time friction. Mm-hmm. I, I remember you know, when I you know, first started in the finance space and was working at broker-dealers you know, doing numbers, we had our daily trading P&Ls. Mark closes at four, people wanted their P&Ls by four or five, and you figured out a way to do it. And so you had these you know, pricing and balance sheet, cash movement breaks, you know, end of day marks, liquid, non-liquid, right? all these things had to happen in a very condensed period of time, and you could tell someone what their P&L was. But then you went to the month end close, and it was like, okay, we're going to take three weeks to close the books. Yeah. And to me, it was, it was always that discrepancy of like, okay, we can figure out a you know, multi-portfolio multi-billion dollar notional value P&L adjustment in a matter of 15 to 20 minutes and get it pretty quite accurate most days. Mm-hmm. But then it takes three weeks to actually provide the full P&L for the month. And you know, we know how much we pay for rent, what our payroll costs are. We know what our vendor costs are. We know, you know revenue coming. Like, and that was really my shift from you know, the public accounting space you know, into you know, corporate finance and mm-hmm. financial operations was how do you then use technology to significantly reduce the amount of time it takes to get information around your monthly financials and the 
business performance and make it close to real time because people want to have a conversation now. No one wants to hear, oh, we're doing the close. Yeah. We'll be back to you. And we're on day three. We'll get back to you on day 13 and talk then, right? That the information is so valuable that you need to be able to look at you know, numbers real time, reduce close cycles. And you know, the only way you can do that is with a thoughtful technology platform behind it. The overall goal of that, which is in real time, relevant, compelling insights is like the holy grail of finance teams and CFOs around the world because your your teams have limited time. You're trying to free them up from all that admin that you too didn't want to do when you were early in your career. So what have you found works certainly in your experience, whether it's at Symphony or elsewhere, that we're getting you closer to that holy grail of real-time insights and maybe what wrong turns have you taken along the way? There's a couple of things. One is you know, encouraging slash requiring the finance team to understand the business at a detailed level. Mm -hmm. And you know, for my private equity, you know, when I worked for a company that was owned by private equity, you know, so much of what we did was around what we call unit economics. So what's the unit we're selling? What's the price? And how does that translate into an economic model? Mm -hmm. And there are times in a controller's organization where I found people were just focused purely on the numbers and the reconciliations and the breaks, but didn't really understand what was generating those numbers. What are the products? What's the price? How are we selling them? What's the contract term? And can you talk about the business with the numbers as a output, as opposed to talking about numbers and trying to figure out what they mean relative to the business? Mm -hmm. And I found that working with controllers, organizations, and people that are, you know, excellent accountants, but really driving the conversation around the business, the product, what customers are buying, turns into a better knowledge of the financial model. And that's the marrying of accounting theory, accounting practice with corporate finance and unit economics, where you can then have a earlier in the month conversation about the results. Because people aren't necessarily waiting for an accrual to come in or an invoice or you know, they in their mind, they're able to structure almost accounting engineering, you know, structure what the month looks like from a financial standpoint. And then at our company, we have a lot of cloud hosting costs. So instead of waiting for you know, a cloud provider to send us an invoice, what the cost was, we know the inputs that drive the cost. We have a pricing model. We can build that model. We put in what we enter in the inputs, make sure it's mm -hmm. current we have a really good sense of what that cost is going to be. And so we can start talking about month-end results long before an invoice shows up saying, you know, here's what your actual consumption was. And I think for me, I've always, that's just been a, a consistent in all the teams I've worked with is driving to be able to talk the business with the number supporting. But it sounds as in that culture, there's a, like a core aspect of proactivity. So like not oh, yeah. waiting for the stuff to come in so that you can assess it and process it, but you're actually building, in that case, the pricing model to be able to estimate what your vendor should be doing for you. I worked at uh, Charles Schwab for a number of years and you know, that we really kind of drove that initial model of, uh, I mean, it was around payment for order flow. Mm -hmm. And we were sending a lot of order flow to ECNs, ATSs and liquidity rebates, all the different kind of market microstructure that was in place. And our... COO at that time and heads of trading, they couldn't wait four or five days to understand what their net economics looked like. So we had to come up with a way in the you know, finance organization to create a model that could almost real time show what your know, net cash looked like and net profitability, even though the systems that were 
actually doing the work, we're your days behind us. And do you think that when, when I listen to some of the technical terms and some of the things you referenced, which are unique, of course, to the markets and capital markets, yeah. do you think that the corporate finance it, it has an extra level or and layer of complexity versus perhaps a more conventional industry, whether it's technology, software, or even retail, because of all of the technicalities that you've described? Without a doubt. The first investment bank that I worked for was uh, Robertson Stevens out in mm-hmm. San Francisco. And yeah, I'd worked at Pricewaterhouse for a number of years and was in my mid-20s and knew everything and had all this great experience in my mind. And I sat down with a trader and started talking to him about his position. And there was an equity desk and what they were looking to get done. And they didn't understand some of the numbers and the financials weren't right. And in 45 minutes, I wrote down every reference and acronym and market structure word that this individual said. I walked out of there like, wow, I don't know a thing. Like I thought I understood broker-dealer and I understand broker-dealer accounting and some of the regulatory requirements from an accounting and audit standpoint, but I just don't know the language of market structure to this degree. And if I want these people who are you know, my clients, I was the, the, the controller and you know, head of finance for that business. So I want them to value my opinion. I better figure out how to understand what they're saying at a quick pace. So when they start talking about trading and market structure and you know, different terms around derivatives and notional value, like all the things that come in. So for me, it was just a quick dive of just start learning, listen, learn, listen, learn, and then you know, find the time to ask questions. But in the trading space or the trading environment, trading culture, you know, things move so quickly that if you're not putting the individual effort in to learn, understand, and you become part of that ecosystem, people aren't necessarily going to pull you along with them. They'll yeah, obviously just find someone else who's you know, already done that work. And then I wanted to come back to one thing that you mentioned at the beginning, which was, of course, the idea of an effective CFO. And, and the, you'd recognize very early on that you wanted to become a CFO. It was an aspiration of yours because it was a, a role with Im- impact. But we're, one of the, the themes we've explored on the podcast frequently is the idea of that the, the role of the CFO is increasing over time, is becoming more strategic, more demanding. So I'd like to understand from your perspective, given that you've seen it over over many different roles now in many different environments. What to you uh, describes the role of the CFO and how is that changing over time? It, it continues to evolve. And to, to me, it, it's evolving in a very you know, exciting way. And you know, the, when I think of you know, the role of the CFO, you know, first, you, you have to be viewed as a proxy for the CEO. Mm-hmm. So you have to be in the CEO's mind, you know, understand you know, her, his strategy, how they're looking to run the company, what they're being measured on, what are the stress areas that they're, you know, that's consuming their time, what are the success areas that they're looking to drive, and making sure that there's a really strong connection between the strategic and operating decisions that get made, you know, ultimately the CEO makes, and the financial outcomes that the CFO is looking to drive. Mm-hmm. I've been you know, really fortunate to have worked with, at this point, I want to say six or seven, you're just fantastic CEOs. Mm-hmm. And they took the finance element seriously. They understood that from a board and investor perspective, understanding the financials, driving the financials, having a strong CFO partner was helpful to them. And that you know, I was someone that could you know, work closely with CEOs and really go into the details on the financials, but also you know, make sure that the strategy of the firm had a financial element, but wasn't overarchingly tilted towards just a financial outcome because people don't talk numbers. 
you don't walk up to someone and say, hi, seven plus four, how are you? <laughs> they talk about what's happening in the world and what's going on in a business and then you know, use numbers to, to measure that. So I think the CEO partnership is, and being a proxy for the CEO is really critical because CEOs can't be in the same, in more than one place. You know, they have to get a message out. They have to have a repeatable message, consistent. And in complex organizations, people are always looking for, you know, what are we supposed to be doing? What's the strategy? How do we communicate? Your number two you know, is communication. As a CFO, you need to be able to communicate effectively and concisely with a wide variety of constituents, and you need to understand the audience that you're communicating to. And it could be people that you work with. We have you know, 625 people at Symphony. I do a lot of town halls, smaller group sessions, and it's important that I can communicate to our team in a way that resonates with what they're doing. You know, we're owned by the 18 global investment banks. So our board meetings are kind of big events. You know, what our board is looking for and what they want to hear is different than what our employees may want to hear or a different approach, but it's the same information. So mm-hmm. how do you then communicate you know, in a different way to a board of directors that hits on what they're looking for? And then you know, the same with you know, investors on the equity side or the debt side, clients that we speak to. Right? When I talk to clients, they want to hear something different than the board. Your clients aren't really interested in the financial performance of the firm. They're interested in how much are you investing in the products that matter to us? Yeah. And when does that investment come to fruition that we have a better product, improvements on product and product roadmap? The CFOs that I've really you know, modeled myself after and learned a lot from, I found that they were just fantastic at communicating and understanding the audience they're in and how to communicate in the language or terms that's most relevant to that audience. Mm-hmm. And I think the third, I would say, you have to be absorbed in the business. Yeah, I've seen CFOs who just kind of step back and you know, I'll run the books or I'll run the numbers or I'll do the budget. And they're a kind of uh, recipient of information. And then you're just at the mercy of either the markets or decisions that are made away from you. You, you really have to know, you know why do customers buy our product? Where do we have deficiencies? Where are customers looking to spend money or required to spend money if it's from a compliance standpoint? You know, how are our investments enabling our products to be better positioned within the customer base and within the uh, the people that are looking to buy our product? And then how do you all that in a way that level of profitability mm-hmm. that we would want in, in a business enterprise uh, like ours? So it, CEO relationship, proxy to the CEO, communication, and then just that deep understanding of the business to me, those are the three things that I always just kind of circle around you know, as a CFO. And you know, when I measure myself in terms of effectiveness, mm-hmm. I'm all, those are the three that I'm you know, looking for. And with that in mind, the, those that's the aspects of the role. Like, What do you think, again, having been in the role so many times, but also I'm sure you've got a network of so many peers, are there any particular traits that you have seen in an effective CFO? You need to have some passion and excitement for the business that you're in. And you know, similar to other professions, I could probably do an okay job as the CFO of a manufacturing firm or a retail organization, but I probably wouldn't have the same level of passion for it that I do about capital markets and capital markets technology. And I've always been someone who just absorbs myself you know, in the industry and, and what's happening and networking across. So you have to have passion. Uh, your intellectual curiosity is paramount. Eventually, the numbers tell you everything, but they don't tell you everything if you don't spend time understanding how they're built, how they're generated, and what themes are coming out of the numbers. So you really have to have that intellectual curiosity. And then you you need to be someone that can be a leader of people. And a CFO role is, there are a lot of leadership 
you're, you're leading a executive team, you're leading a finance team, you're leading operational teams, you're working closely with clients, you're talking about a three-year vision and then building back into that on a quarterly basis on, yeah, on how you know, the results and investments are, are, are uh, paying off towards that vision. And if you don't have you know, that leadership ability across the organization, across the team, I find it's really difficult to drive you know, the strategy that uh, that you want to implement, that the CEOs you know, and you're helping the CEO implement. And and on that leadership part is that it is so clearly so critical uh, given the the importance of the role. But there are many different ways to lead. And, and the last few years have been obviously an incredibly challenging time to lead. And it's yeah. involved even more emphasis on communication. Are there any rules of thumb that, that you've learned to apply and maybe honed over time about how you like to lead? Yeah, ab- absolutely. I've modeled myself after your number of the CFOs or your other executives that I've worked for that I found to be successful. I say one is you have to be an individual contributor, even at the CFO level. You have to be able to do your own work. You have to be able to do your own analysis. You have to be able to get your own information. And I've often found that the teams that I work with, if someone's looking at me saying, okay, he's going in, getting information, creating something, doing a schedule, doing a presentation, and this is his individual contribution to part of it, I can go do the same thing. Yeah. And yeah, you know, I found that you know that's a good way to teach people one it, what you're looking for and how to structure a message or structure a communication, but also there's no I'm just a manager. Right? Everyone has a role of individual c- contribution and you know, parts of the project. Now you can do that in a way that uh, way that scales, but I think that's uh, yeah, that's a really important part. And it's the same thing. You know, I, I'll tell my teams all the time. I will never ask you guys to do anything that I'm not going to do myself or mm-hmm. I wouldn't do myself. Or I'm not going to be shoulder to shoulder with you, you know, as we do it. And I think you know, being able to you know, ha- develop that connection and that we're a team. I learned so much from the people on my team. You know, our, the controllers that you know, I've worked with you know, are some of the best you know, accountants I've ever come across. And I'm always learning from them. The people that I've worked with on the treasury side or the investor relations side, you, you have these, these functional specialties that people have a deep expertise in on mm-hmm. the tax side. Mm-hmm. And you know, they're functional experts. Your job as a CFO is on how do you connect those functional experts within each other and also to the broader goal that that we're trying to build. That I mean, this is clearly something that you've worked on for a while, but the especially when it comes to leadership and communication, is that something that came naturally to you or did you have to hone that over time? I don't think it necessarily came naturally. There were times where people had said to me, oh, I think you'll be a leader someday. And it was like, I don't know, it feels really uncomfortable to get up in front of, <laughs> in front of people and do some of it. I'm still active. I, you know, soccer was always a big part of my life. And in my role in the field, I always try to take a leadership role. And whether it was high school, college, after college, and I was always able to draw some analogies. Mm-hmm. But I think the a lot of it was just watching people who are effective in leadership and understanding you know, the the traits that they had, the techniques that they used, mm-hmm. you know, what worked, what didn't work, and then just trying things. Part of being a leader is you have to expose yourself. You have to get comfortable. It's a little bit of a cliche, but comfortable being uncomfortable. You have to put yourself out there a little bit. You have to know that you know, if you put your head out, you know, it might get knocked around a little, but as long as you can keep doing that over time, you're going to be able to figure out how to lead. And people will look at that as, okay, that's someone that's comfortable taking a risk and, and pushing us forward. And then a lot of it, you know, I was fortunate between you know, Pricewaterhouse, Charles Schwab, Lehman, NYC, you know, all of those companies and the CEOs of those companies, the people I worked for, invested a significant amount in employee development and leadership training and leadership mm-hmm. initiatives. And those are all you know, dollars that could have gone other places. And I always look back at those organizations as and so fortunate that I was part of them and part of the 
leadership training initiatives that they were important. And in the moment, you didn't always realize it. But when you were with you know, a group of peers offsite for five days, talking about you know, managing global teams mm-hmm. or pitfalls that people make or having direct communications with employees or addressing problems head on or celebrating successes, those things over time, I you know, really I've always thought it's just critical to make sure you're allocating capital and investment towards leadership development. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't, you're just not going to have the the type of individuals that have the experience or the investment. And if you find the right ways and mechanisms to de- deliver that leadership training, the, the results across the organization are just fantastic. That's a, a very interesting point because, of course, nowadays, and this is something I wanted to touch on with you, of course, as well, is that it's a very competitive market for primarily companies that are recruiting. It's a candidate's market, which is fantastic in many ways for those candidates. But for the, the, the people like you, the leaders like you that are trying to build a company and build a team, it's incredibly challenging to, to keep your best and, and to hire for the spaces that you have in, in your squad. So like leadership development, I'm sure, can play a massive role in in the, the type of value proposition you offer to employees beyond, of course, all of the regular stuff like their compensation. But can you talk a little bit about the type of team that perhaps you're building at Symphony um, or that you that you aim to build, given the intensity of that type of market? Yeah, and we've all gone through cycles. The, the market right now, and I've, I've talked to everyone on my team about this and been really direct. If cash is the number one driver of your uh, objectives, you can leave a company now and make 25% more in cash. And, and just, and you could do that year over year, year, year if you wanted to. And then you do see some people do that. So yeah, companies are, unless you're you know, one of the top, one of the fangs or you know, one of these you know, massive global technology organizations that's you know, generating billions of dollars of revenue, you're, you're not going to be able to compete solely on cash and benefits. So what I talked to our team about are you know, compensation is important. And you know, as Symphony, we look to pay at a, uh, you know, a pretty high level you know, within the market, but we're not always able to compete dollar for dollar on cash. So you know, it's culture, it's work environment, it's career progression, it's the experiences that you get on a daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, annual basis. It's the character of the team that you work with and the excitement around the type of projects that you get to work on. Mm-hmm. And if over time you're developing in all those areas, you're increasing the value of the company, which you know, everyone participates in. And you're also increasing your value as a finance professional or HR professional or corporate uh, development professional. And if there comes a time then where you want to go do something else, you know, I've said to folks, like, I don't want you to leave because you're getting 20% more in compensation. I want you to leave because someone's giving you 100% more because you're going into a role that you otherwise would have not had if you didn't have the experience with us. Mm-hmm. And I think most people you have can then kind of gravitate around that of, okay, I'm playing for something a little bit bigger. And that goes into when I think about, you talk about the team. For me, the traits that are really important are people that can work independently and take initiative. If you're a CFO that's con- or a manager for that matter, that's constantly t- asking people, you know, where's your list? Where are you on the list? What's been checked off? What's still open? Why isn't this done? You just, you, that's not, you haven't created the right culture. You haven't brought the right people in. So when I look at my leadership team in our finance and kind of corporate groups, you know, they're all individuals that have you know, a strong inherent drive to get work done, have a lot of individual initiative are able to synthesize what needs to get escalated to a CFO, CEO discussion, you know, what they can handle on their own. I intentionally give a lot of autonomy mm-hmm. to the people that are you know, directly part of my team because I want them to have that experience in decision-making. And you know, the only way that you can get 
good decision making is lots of opportunities to make decisions. And you know, if you get more right than wrong, that's good. But when you get them wrong, you know, we figure it out and uh, and we move on from there. You might not face that where you are right now, because as you said, you alluded to the fact you've got a very strong leadership team and strong expertise in each of those. But of course, the dance for any leader is that you want to give them autonomy, your team autonomy. But let's assume, um, for argument's sake, that some of the times they'll either get decisions wrong or they might actually, the, the, let's say if it's a deliverable or something's been produced, it might not quite be at the level it would have been yep. had you been involved at an earlier stage to help shape it or direct it. How do you get that balance right? Yep. So that, that, that's a great question. I think as a leader, that's something you're always focused on is, and you know, I take the approach of one, I always put in a very structured control environment where it's not bureaucratic or overly you know, govern or approval, but I know I have triggers and flags and analysis that I put in place that I can look across the organization and at least get a, in my view, a pretty high degree of reliability on how things are going. Mm-hmm. And I don't have to ask someone, I can just look. And it could be our cash cycle. It could be where we are with payables, AR. We do monthly reviews of key operating metrics and those metrics are just our numbers, but they start to tell you a trend over time of, okay, this is progressing the right way, or maybe we need to look into this a little bit more. And so people have autonomy to make decisions, but those decisions are manifested in consistent operating metrics that mm-hmm. I can analyze. And those metrics tell me a heck of a lot. And if you've seen them through some cycles, if your AR is starting to, your day's receivable outstanding is trending above an average, then it's like, okay, well, what's happening? You know, do we build someone incorrectly? Do we build someone who's not happy with the product? You know, are we extending credit or to firms that may not have the cash to do it? So that's a big part of it. You know, the other part is, you know, in projects, you know, it's a little bit like a, to me, it's like a little bit like a barbell. And that's the, the approach I talk to my team about all the time is I'm going to be really involved at the beginning. Like we're going to frame it. We're going to structure it. We're going to talk about the outcomes. We're going to talk about what we want to get done. We're going to talk about why we're doing this. And then you're going to go, then go do it. I'm not going to be involved in telling you go left, go right, go up, go down, talk to this person, talk to that person. I'm always available and I'll be checking, but figure out like the way you want to do it. And then we get to the final, then it's 90% done. And then the final 90%, we jump back in. Say, okay, where are we? Like, let's, okay, let's adjust this. Let's think through here. Can we show this a different way? What's the message we're trying to say? What's the point of this? Are the numbers supporting the story that you're trying to say? And then and we wrap it up. And I found over time you know, that works well. And part of it's just, that's the way I like to work of you know, lots of initial engagement, go off and do the work, lots of engagement at the end. But in that you know, middle part, that's where you're figuring things out. And uh, you know, that's where people learn and grow because- they have to go out and you know, talk to people and engage with people and look at things and find things and bring it back. And then you'll get to that end point where they know lots of people are jumping in to have a view. And I guess also they need to have the ability to be exposed to some risk in some real life. So with that, the, the other thing that you touched on earlier on, and we mentioned briefly, was the idea of that historically finance was, of course, extremely admin-centered and, and bureaucratic. And there was a lot a lot of that, which was a core part of the, the stewardship of finance's role for a company. But now that's changing. In fact, that's been changing progressively since the introduction of technology. But there's an argument that that's accelerating. And a big focus for CFOs, and I'd imagine for you too, is like trying to liberate your team so to free them up from the admin and automate as much as possible so that they can either partner, run the projects, or even invest in their own development. 
like what are some of the ways that you try to to then liberate your teams from that from that at times crushing and, and heavy workload of admin? Yeah, that's a great question. I think I would start with uh, you know it's the relevance of the admin work that you're doing. Mm-hmm. We always ask that question, and there is a we think about a job. Sometimes there's a comfortability or security in here's the 10 reports that I do. Here's when I do them. Here's who I send them to. And I'm available for questions. And I do that every month. And that's my job. And sometimes you can go back and say, okay, of those 10 reports, if I go talk to the people that you sent them to and ask them you know, what they gleaned from it. And they say, oh, you know what? I don't look at that one anymore. But you've spent two days putting it together. Either it's not relevant to them because they're looking at it and people do inherently look at relevant information that's relevant to them. Or we're, you're not creating it in a way that's making it relevant, or maybe just it was relevant six months ago and we fixed it, we moved on. So we're always looking at the relevance of what we're doing. And if it's not relevant, not needed, we're quick to just push it to the side and say, we know how to do it if we need to, but it's not going to be a priority and we're going to reshift our work. So that's one relevance. Two is the technology applications. We work very closely with all of our technology providers and people that are in the financial application technology space to make sure that we're getting everything possible out of our technology systems. And Mm -hmm. if we can automate it, we're going to automate it. And if it's a manual process that someone wants to do, we're just going to say, you need to have this automated in two weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, whatever it's going to be. And as part of that, as a CFO, the partnership with the CIO, the head of internal technology, the folks that run and drive these systems is absolutely critical. But you need to be constantly thinking with them on, you know, where are tools, where are applications that we can implement? And when you look at those tools, you're going to make mistakes sometimes in what you choose. If you make a mistake, change it quickly and put another application in. And I think if you're not able to recognize that, you just get caught in the consistent process of all the things that need to get done. So relevance, technology applications, and just that consistent focus on them are you know, the two things that all the teams that I work with in the finance world would say it's just the element of how we operate and how we think. And when it comes to those technology investments, and and there are so many, you, you you need to you know choose. You've only got a few bullets in the chamber, so you need to decide which ones you go for. You mentioned a few that you, people companies always start with their ERP and and CRM yep. and so forth billing systems. Are, what are the the technologies that you're exploring and you you and your team are exploring now that might be for the you know the next year, eighteen months to come? Yeah, it's really interesting what's happening. In the technology space now. When I first started, you know, everything was ERP. You know, mm-hmm. It was Oracle, PeopleSoft, SAP, and these big applications. The user interfaces were not that crisp, but they were industrial strength applications. As long as you went through the steps, you could do HR and you could do recruiting, you could do payments, receipts, general ledgers, reporting, expenses. And then you know, all these cloud-based applications came out and they were specific purposes, right? Mm-hmm. It could be your TNA report. You could be travel. It could be procurement. could be good on the uh, analytics. could be general ledger. could be FP&A, right? And so all of a sudden people started expanding out to like, I need a better FP&A application. So let me just go buy an FPA specific. It will tie into my GL. And they did all that work. And what I noticed, and we noticed that at Symphony is the number of our specific outcome-based applications we had was just proliferating to a spot where it became almost impossible to manage, right? Different yeah. password everywhere, different login, trying to have APIs going back and forth, you know, putting data. So we're actually in, a, we're now kind of shifting back to that more comprehensive approach of let's identify a few technology applications 
that can handle multiple processes that can handle full GL, full FPNA procurement process, employee mm-hmm. expense process, TNE. And I think what's happened is a lot of those firms have realized that they they need to have a better user experience, better you know, interfaces, more flexibility, and you know, have you know applica- mobile applications and all the things that some of the process specific uh, applications did. So we're moving back to a more uh, comprehensive approach of things within one application, but that comprehensive approach is, is a much better software package and user experience than you would have had you know, 10 or 15 years ago. So in many ways, those those legacy players, as you might have called them, are are catching up in some senses yeah. on their core tools. Yeah. And a lot of them bought companies. They went out and realized that hey, we yeah. really, and this, it's, it's just a business, right? You realize like we have a dominant position here. Our product is not able to keep pace with market demands, but we're generating a lot of cash from these products. So let's go out and buy the applications, integrate them. And now our product has more capability and resonates more with individuals coming in. I mean, especially when you think about, you know, when we're hiring people right out of school or in their early career, 10 years or less, and you think of how they interact with applications on their iPhone or their Android you need to replicate that experience in a professional environment. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, they're going to view you as a dated technology organization that you know, hasn't kept pace with you know, the rest of the world, which you know, does accelerate at a, at a pretty uh, quick clip. And I think on top of that as well is that you've got some of the new breeds of players, and I say new, but they're still almost 25 years old in Salesforce, that they were the ones that were upending the the legacy systems of Siebel and so forth. Uh, and now they've got a huge portfolio of various products that, that expand far beyond the, the core CRM they started with. So Ben, as we um, draw the interview to a close, you've touched on many of the like the traits of like of an effective CFO and and, and certainly how the, the rules of thumb that you've applied um, to leadership and so on. But for anyone that's listening that that would like to one day emulate you and become CFO, uh, is there anything you would really re- like to emphasize or anything else you would give them as a tip to make sure when that time comes, they could be successful in the role? Definitely. You're my first I would say 10 years of working were within a finance organization and your controller roles, your senior finance roles, a lot of exposure to the business, but was in the security of finance where there was always so much work to be done that as long as you were doing a pretty good job, you're going to, you're going to have a job and have some relevance in the company. When I started at Lehman brothers, it was in a business management role working for a head of trading, a head of sales, helping them manage their equities businesses. Mm-hmm. But there wasn't financial reporting. There wasn't regulatory reporting. There, there wasn't necessarily lots of presentations that you had to do. So all of a sudden, like that security of here's all the work that I have to do goes away. Mm-hmm. And it was now can I go make my job relevant to these two folks that I was working for? And how, I, I had to figure out quickly, what can I do every day that's relevant to their business success? And Certainly, I would say the first six months or so, it, it was a bit of a struggle because I was used to like the process of finance. Yeah. And now it was like, no, we're actually running a business. And you know, we're thinking about product profitability, thinking about uh, you know our costs, our acquisition costs, we're thinking about what are market trends that are happening, how do we respond to it, what do we need to build, who, we, who do we need to hire, how do we position people geographically, what trends are we seeing with clients? So it just quickly opened up this whole world to me that I hadn't really thought about. And when I ended up you know, moving on from Lehman and going to NYC, it was you know specifically to be in a in a CFO type role, mm-hmm. but 
the ability, that the experience I had at Lehman to understand how businesses run, make real-time business decisions, and be part of and support a leadership team that is running a, I mean, it was it, hundreds and hundreds millions of dollars of revenue that we had coming in, just gave such a different perspective. So one, I would say to people that want to be in a CFO role, make sure you have business-specific experience. It's not just about running a process or understanding the numbers or being able to calculate uh, you know, EPS or share buybacks or other things that you get kind of get involved in. You know, two, I would say you, know, you really have to network and find people who you want to emulate. And for me, I was just so fortunate that sometimes it was by happenstance, other time it was you know, decisions of who I went to went to work for. But I was just really lucky in my career to have some phenomenal CFOs that I worked for that I would just learn as much as possible and ask questions and study and emulate. And, and part of that, I think the third thing I would say is you really have to dig deep to understand you know, the economics of a business. Mm-hmm. And it's not just the surface level numbers, it's the drivers underneath, especially in, for us in a software type business where you know, there's different value attributable to different parts of what we do. You as a CFO need to have that you know, mental understanding of the economics that are happening across the organization. Mm-hmm. And then the final thing I would say, and it goes back to the communication point, is you, you have to be able to translate numbers to a business sto- story or a business outcome and then business outcome back to numbers. Because numbers are f- foundational and numbers give security, but numbers don't tell people what's actually happening in the business. They don't tell why clients are buying more of something. They don't say why something is uh, seeing really good market penetration. They don't tell you why things you know, aren't happening. And you need to be able to, as a CFO, talk to non-financial people or really sophisticated business people who may not be into the numbers, explain to them what's happening and why, and then support it back with the numbers. And I think when I see the CFOs that just do a phenomenal job, they can just transverse across the whole business environment uh, seamlessly, weaving in numbers, operating metrics, product results, customer impact. And it's just part of a comprehensive narrative of the business, mm-hmm. as opposed to just telling people that this was up 2% and that was up 7% and this was down 4%. It's like, well, that's on the page. I can see it just as well as you can. So <laughs> tell me why. Yeah, tell tell the story. I guess is yeah. is one of the main messages. Uh, ben, I think that's brilliant advice. Thank you for taking the time to to join us on the podcast. Absolutely, thank you for having me. This has been uh, really enjoyable, and uh, appreciate the invitation. One last thing, we want to learn from you, our listeners, to learn how we can make the CFO playbook even better. Head to our show notes to find a link to our listener survey. As a thank you, you'll have the opportunity to win your choice of an iPad or a Samsung Galaxy Tab S7. We would love your feedback. This show is brought to you by Soldo, the brighter way to manage business spending and expenses. With Soldo, you can control every expense, track spend in real time, automate financial reporting, and then use those insights to fuel growth. Learn more at soldo.com.